I am really so privileged to be hosting this conversation with these two amazing women. I'm going to give very short, brief bios, but I mean, honestly, I could take the whole hour sharing what these two amazing women do. Jocelyn Benson, as I'm sure we all know, is Michigan's Secretary of State in her role. Uh, in this role, she oversaw Michigan's elections in 2022 and 2020, both of which drew record-breaking turnout and earned her the national recognition, including the John F. Kennedy Profiling Courage and the Presidential Citizens Medal, the new voting rights and protections for all eligible Michiganders um, eligible voters, sorry, that she has spearheaded makes Michigan a model for all other states to follow. So, wow. Welcome, Secretary Benson. Thank you for being here. Thank Wendy you, Weiser. Hi. Wendy Weiser is Vice President for Democracy at the Brennan Center. She founded and directed the program's Voting Rights and Elections Project. She directs litigation, research, and advocacy efforts to enhance political participation and prevent voter disenfranchisement across the country. We're really fortunate to have you both here. Thank you for coming to Big Tent. I turn the conversation over to you. Well, thank you so much, Mary, and thank you so much to Big Tent for being such a critical resource and such a source of much needed energy to strengthen our democracy and our key concerns. Um, and I am couldn't be more delighted this morning than to be in this afternoon to be in conversation with one of our nation's most important and inspiring leaders running elections, protecting our democracy, someone who can make us proud of our democracy and with whom I've been proud to work for for more work with for more years than um, we care to count. And so before I dive into the questions, I just wanted to turn it over to you, Jocelyn, if you want to say a few words, Secretary Benson. Thanks, Wendy. And hi, everyone. Um, it's really great to be here here in, in uh, Galentine's Day and uh, the precipice of a momentous election year. Uh, it's going to be a noisy election year. Uh, a lot of folks are worried about a number of things uh, and uh, top of the list of those worries are the future of our reproductive freedoms and our democracy. And I think in many ways, as Mary was pointing out, these concerns are um, at the forefront of a lot of our minds because they have good reason to be. Uh, they're concerns that are um, that we feel in the context of uh, violent or sometimes nonsensical rhetoric, uh, calls for deep division and even civil war and the demonization of political opponents. All of that is is going to be increasingly uh, prevalent this year. And it will damage many voters' faith in uh, their voice, their vote, and in the well-proven security and accuracy of our elections. So I have, uh, you know, I think we're all clear-eyed, having lived through 2020 and 2022, about uh, the rocky road ahead of us. Um, but I'm also clear-eyed about the fact that none of us have to stand idly by. Uh, we have tremendous power as citizens, as women, as voters, as Americans, uh, and um, with all its challenges, 2024 is a great opportunity, I believe, to prove that we as a nation, no matter where we live or what political party we may belong to, uh, that we are committed to the protection and preservation of the American dream and American democracy. Uh, so as uh, Ms. Michigan Secretary of State, I'm excited to be a part of that in this moment. 
and uh, uh, great to see so many of you here also connected to Michigan or connected to other battleground states. Uh, I think uh, no matter where we are, as I mentioned, we've got a role to play this year, and I know that's a lot of what we're going to talk about today, and I hope you leave here with uh, even greater clarity uh, that you had at the beginning of our conversation about what you can do to be a part of this moment. So thank you so much, Secretary. Um, we're going to dive right into um, the getting ready for the 2024 election. As you know, we are all worried about many, many things this presidential election year. One key worry is voter access. For more than a decade, we've witnessed a deluge of laws across the country, making it harder for eligible Americans to vote, disproportionately targeting voters of color, students, other vulnerable um, voters. Last year alone, according to the Brennan Center, um, are tracking um, 14 states passed 17 restrictive voting laws. That's hundred more than 100 laws passed in the past decade, and two-thirds of those have actually been passed since the 2020 um, election. So this is a really significant threat across the country. But the, but the news on voter access has not been all bad. While some states have been making it harder to vote, other states have been expanding voter access. And under over the past two years, Michigan's been a bright spot. Under your leadership, it has become a national leader in expanding voting rights, um, uh, expanding voter access, and expanding election integrity. So I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about some of the new laws and measures that you have helped put in place to ensure free and fair elections, how effective they are, how should they make us feel more confident in the election this year. Yeah, it's really a, a great story that in the midst of all of these challenges to democracy that have taken center stage over the last several years, there's also this beautiful story in Michigan and throughout the country of voters rising up and demanding a better democracy and getting it. Uh, in Michigan, our story is bookended by two significant ballot initiatives, one of which was enacted in 2018 and the other enacted in 2022. These are ballot initiatives that amended our state constitution to expand election opportunities and options to vote in our state and help improve the transparency and security of the process. And the beauty of them is that they were voter written, voter driven, voter enacted. Uh, they are uh, were supported overwhelmingly by voters uh, uh, on both sides of the aisle. Uh, there were, uh, you know, I won my reelection in 2022 by 14 points, but there were people who, who didn't vote for me, but still voted for these policies uh, and it, because it won by an even greater margin, uh, which is really quite remarkable. And what that does is enable us to enact a number of pro-voter policies, ranging from automatic voter registration, election day registration, online voter registration, to no reason absentee voting or universal vote by mail, expanded drop boxes, and nine days of early voting, which we now have in Michigan, and a number of other things, a permanent absentee ballot mailing list for people who permanently want ballots sent to them ahead of every election that they can then return at their, uh, in a way that, that makes the most sense to them through the mail at a drop box and they're in person. Uh, so we have drastically modernized our elections in Michigan with all of these policies but no politician has championed them. It's really been voters, which has made it remarkably easier for us to then educate citizens about how to take advantage of these new policies because many of them voted on them and believe in them and are familiar with them already. Uh, I can um, 
I have learned as someone who advocates for expanded voter policies and has done so throughout my career, that, uh, that getting them in place is really only a third of what you need to do to ensure the goals behind the policy come to fruition. Having someone at the state and local level to implement these policies, getting them fully funded, and then educating voters about how to take advantage of them is all just as important as getting it enacted in the first place. So we've been able to lead that latter part, which has been crucial, but we wouldn't be able to do any of that work without the support of the voters and the will of the voters bringing these policies to fruition, which is a great story uh, as to how our democracy has expanded even in the midst of these challenging times. So thank you. I'm, I'm going to turn a little bit to the challenges, and uh, I'll start by harking back to 2020 when secretaries of state were thrown into the spotlight. Partly, of course, because of the challenges of trying to retrofit and run uh, an election um, during a global pandemic, but even more so because of the unprecedented national effort by a presidential campaign to interfere in election to overturn the results. Um, I was privileged to um, attend a ceremony at the White House where President Biden awarded you the Presidential Citizens Medal for your work both to stand up for our democracy to try to thwart um, the plots to um, interfere in the election, uh, along with another a number of other election heroes, um, election officials, poll workers, and actually Capitol Police officers as well. And in many ways, we are still mired in the aftermath of January 6th and the attempt to overturn the 2020 election. So I'm going to ask a couple of questions about this and the challenges that, that, that you're now facing. One of the first problems I want to highlight is political violence. We have a heightened climate of mistrust, of political violence directed especially at election officials, the hardworking women and men who are forming the backbone of our democracy. We've been tracking that um, these threats for some time now, and they are ongoing. They have not they have not been abating. Women make up 80% of election officials in the United States. And the harassment that women and their families experience is often much more virulent and different. And you yourself have been the subject of these kinds of attacks and harassment. So I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about what you've experienced, what kinds of harassment you've seen in Michigan how it's impacting your ability to do your job and the ability of your other colleagues to do their jobs um, and what you've been doing to address these threats and what maybe we can do to support that and to help. Yeah, I think uh, one of the uh, greatest challenges of the last few years has been the result of the lies and the misinformation that is really rooted in some one person's inability to accept that he lost an election. Uh, the lies and the misinformation that culminated even in the tragedy at our U.S. Capitol on January 6th, but also led armed protesters to come outside my home in the dark of night in December of 2020 to demand or try to pressure me to not certify a valid election. Uh, and local clerks throughout our state dealt with similar things in that moment and in the years since to the point where we are all exhausted and we're tired of doing our jobs with integrity and yet still being accused of uh, these sort of various conspiracy theories and falsehoods that result in people wanting to harm us and harm our families and harm our staff. Uh, we have to install bulletproof glass in our clerk's offices. We've had to uh, have you know security with us at all times as a result of these threats. And uh, and you were faced with this question of how are we going to respond? Uh, we know that those threatening us want us to be afraid. 
We know that they want us to feel unnerved or anxiety. And so our best response has been to reject that and instead return uh, or sort of uh, respond with strength and purpose and determination and really being emboldened to do the work of defending democracy at a time when people want to de demolish it in, in many ways. So I have been honored to stand alongside colleagues of mine across the country and within our elections here in Michigan, who have only dug our heels in deeper and embraced our jobs as nonpartisan professional election administrators to ensure every voter can have rightly, rightfully placed faith in their voice, in their vote, and in their democracy. And they don't have to worry about us being threatened in a way that would diminish their voice or their vote. Instead, we come back stronger. And in doing that, we can push for a stronger and healthier democracy than ever before. In Michigan, in addition to that, we spent the time between the 2022 election and now strengthening our laws to ensure accountability for those who would threaten the people who personify democracy. Uh, we uh, have stood firmly in our belief that you have to protect the people who protect democracy. And in doing so, we have made it a specific crime not just to dox or swat an election official, but to in any way threaten their ability to do their job or their lives in the course of their job with escalating penalties uh, as um, perhaps crimes are repeated. So with that, along with partnerships with law enforcement and others, we've got a strong handle on protecting our election officials. And again, as a result, our community feels protected and also feels more determined than ever to ensure our elections continue to go smoothly because that's our job. And we're really proud to be doing it even in this moment. Well, thank you. And you noted some of the measures you've took and you've put in place to protect against the kinds of attacks that have grown out of um, the post-2020 election denialism. Uh, another one of the um, problems that we are continuing to face is the normalization and increased risk of efforts to subvert election outcomes. And a number of the tactics that were used and tried in the 20 and failed in 2020 do remain risks headed into 2024. We were tracking that in a, a, a publication, the Election Deniers Playbook. A lot of that is in the Protect Democracy resource we heard too. Um, one of the tactics that we're worried about is that losing candidates might continue to try to persuade relevant local local officials in Michigan um, canvassing boards um, to refuse to certify election results. Um, this is something we continue to see, not only in 2020, but in 2022, despite the fact that it was unlawful. Um, Michigan recently passed um, a ballot initiative to address this, so I'm hoping that you can talk a little bit about what that is and, um, and why that's important and whether you're still worried about this particular tactic that has been used in Michigan. Yeah, in various states, particularly battleground states, and I'm particularly worried and concerned this year about North Carolina and Wisconsin in this regard, uh, you have a post-election certification process in which some entity, be it a board of canvassers, as we have here in Michigan, or a secretary of state or a governor, must certify and finalize the results of the election. And so one of the pressure points in 2020 were citizens trying to stop that certification from happening. We know already that that will be tried again. Uh, and we know in doing so, there are really two tracks to the strategy of trying to influence the election. One is actually to block certification or to uh, put enough um, gum in the process, so to speak, 
that it would slow it down and would create enough avenues of doubt and a record of wrongdoing, perhaps, uh, that would enable the acceptance of another alternate slate of electors or other types of things to happen on January 6th when the when Congress meets to, to finally federally certify the electors and, and declare um, ultimately the winner. So that said, there's a sort of a, a track of actually trying to interfere with the process. And then there's a separate track of trying to create this air of this cast dispersion, sow seeds of doubt and create a narrative of, um, of illegitimacy. Uh, not just on the election, but on the ultimate victor and thereby make it impossible for them to govern. So the narrative war, as well as the actual war engaged in trying to stop the certification are, are two things, two fronts of the same battle that we're fighting uh, in the post-election certification process. On the certification side, we've tightened up our processes even more. Uh, undoubtedly, Democracy prevailed in 2020 because people of integrity in these positions did the right thing. What we've done in the year since is, is making it even clear that they have a ministerial role to uh, certify the elections and they don't have the authority to reopen, close challenges or other things to cast seeds of doubt or otherwise block the process. We also can swiftly go to court if a certification does fail, and we are prepared to do that in 2020. We'll be prepared to do that, do that in 2024. There are very little legitimate avenues through which, and because there's so many checks and balances, there are very little legitimate avenues through which certification can ultimately be formally blocked in the states. Uh, they can make it harder, more painful, more challenging. And indeed, that's the strategy, or perhaps pressure officials like lawmakers or others to interfere with the process in some sort of official way. But there's enough checks and balances across the board to typically stop those uh, challenges to certification from coming fully to fruition and completely uh, overturning an election result. That said, those checks and balances could fail and there's always a path, but the bigger path, or I would say the path that gets more oxygen by those uh, trying to interfere with the certification process is to win the narrative war, even if the actual effort fails. And that's the battle we really fought full force in 2020 because we knew if Michigan's elections didn't get certified or if we had to go to court to compel certification, that would create an additional air of, of questions around the election that could enable the vice president to accept alternate slates of electors in Congress on January 6th. So going into 2024, we know this is remains the playbook. Uh, we've tightened up our processes to make, as I said, certification go even more smoothly and have less uh, opportunity for wiggle room when you have legitimate election results deserving of certification. But that said, we have seen a number of lawsuits already uh, in Pennsylvania and Michigan and elsewhere challenging the uh, people who are registered to vote, our voter rolls, trying to create a record essentially um, of, of questions um, about our election processes now so that in the post-election process, they'll have a more robust argument than perhaps they did in 2020 that some for some reason those election results shouldn't be trusted. So we already are seeing the movements now. They will and potentially enter that post-election process in November with a stronger argument, I won't say argument, with a stronger, more sophisticated effort uh, to try to overturn our elections that we're prepared for. But all of us need to be able to prepare for the narrative piece and try to push back on the lies and misinformation that will undoubtedly be part of the um, effort uh, so that 
so that their their attempt to create an air of of illegitimacy around the election fails just as much as any attempt to wrongly overturn the certification would fail as well. So these are all really critical points um, that we we don't have time to unpack them all, but the huge disinformation warfare that is going on and the, the big disinformation battle that um, is going to be critical to winning for um, having a, a free and fair election in 2024. The multifaceted nature of the attacks and, and you elevated something that's reasonably new since 2020, which is weaponizing the courts, using litigation to try to undermine voter access, undermine the election integrity, undermine the election system. There were 60 lawsuits that constantly get repeated where the Trump campaign lost um, trying to overturn the election. But in the ensuing year, there's been now hundreds of lawsuits brought by um, extremists trying to challenge election administration practices or otherwise undermine elections and that's ongoing and it's a new front and a new area that we're all fighting in. Another challenge that I, I'm going to throw into the mix is cyber security. We are facing very um, increased uh, an increasingly um, difficult threat environment both from within and from without. The cybersecurity threats both threaten to exacerbate this misinformation problem that you mentioned, and also the security of our election system. We know from the Director of National Intelligence that recently China, Russia, Iran, and other foreign adversaries actually tried to interfere in the 2022 election, and there are risks from within as well in Michigan. You had to get um, decommissioned voting machines in a county um, and one as in some other states as well, because there was actual unauthorized access of election equipment by people who were trying to uh, prove um, a conspiracy theory and thereby compromise the security of our election system. And the cyber threats are already exacerbating not only the misinformation, but the new AI technology threatens to supercharge all of these risks. So I want, I'm want i hoping that you can talk a little bit about how these cyber threats are impacting the disinformation landscape in Michigan. How have you worked to strengthen the safeguards protecting Michigan's election system against these kinds of cyber threats and disinformation? And what more can we do to support that? Well, Michigan is a very decentralized system. We have myself at the statewide level, then 83 counties, and then 1,500, 1,520 local jurisdictions, each of which the local level actually operate the elections and report out the results to the county, and then that gets reported up to the state. So there are various, that creates various entry points for, uh, for adversaries to potentially try to gum up the process. But it also makes it very difficult with all those checks and balances for any effort to interfere with our elections from a cybersecurity standpoint to have a significant impact. Uh, we also keep close tabs on the, uh, uh, the the processes. You know, none of our machines are connected to modems or the internet, for example. 
uh, with, uh, and so we have sort of universal security guidelines in place. We have upgraded all of our local websites over with, uh, in partnership with the federal government over the last several years to ensure they are as strongly protected as possible against the potential for hacking. And we've shored up security in terms of who has access or is tracking access to our electronic poll books as well as our voter file. So we have strengthened our cybersecurity resources and what is the far lower bar for foreign and domestic adversaries to use technology for, uh, as well as the, the most likely avenue as a result is not necessarily to try to hack into our voter file. That would be found, tracked, revealed, stopped. We know we have the ability to detect those issues. Uh, what is more likely, and and when do you know this? We've we've talked a great deal about this over the last few years. What is more likely is that instead of trying to hack our voter systems, they'll try to hack the voters' minds through confusion and misinformation, in particular with access to artificial intelligence. And it was great to see the FCC recently uh, issue a statement banning or essentially criminalizing the use of artificial intelligence for deceptive robocalls. That gives you an example. We've also banned it here in Michigan. Several other states have done the same, as well as requiring disclaimers on any artificial intelligence use. Um, but, you know, I was in a community meeting in Dearborn just last night uh, talking about, you know, what we, how we have to be prepared for fake robocalls to go out on Election Day from the mayor or from a, a, a particularly influential voice in the city that are false, that are manipulated, but say, don't vote or don't show up to this polling place because there's violence there or false images going around uh, generated perhaps by uh, sources in Russia and China, but sending them to voters in uh, Michigan that or in students um, who oftentimes wait to the last minute to vote saying, don't show up to your student center. There's an active shooter drill happening or some or active shooter happening. You just there, there are so many ways in which lies and false images and manipulated voices can be used to have an impact on voters' faith in the process and their feeling of safety and comfort in participating in it. That we feel is the most likely the, the biggest threat to security this year. We're working to put all processes in place to deter and rapidly respond to issues if they occur. But at the end of the day, it's up to us to make sure voters can't be fooled and develop the tools to protect voters from being fooled from these false messages. But we must anticipate they will come and we must empower voters in every community to recognize the lies and the falsehoods and not be fooled by them. If we do that, then no tactic will succeed. But uh, um, it's both the, the most greatest challenge and the beauty of our democracy that it's ultimately the citizens who are at the heart of ensuring election security and their ability to protect themselves from being quote unquote hacked and confused about the process is our strongest focus uh, in, in securing our elections writ large this cycle. And, and just listening to you, I think it should be clear to everybody how much of a all hands on deck, busy, effort this has been just to do the basic job of making sure that an election runs smoothly and is not subverted, undermined. And I, I do want to also call out one area of strength where there's been 
real partnerships developed between election officials and law enforcement and federal agencies and other state um, departments in order to work together on these strategies to protect against the deluge of disinformation and other attacks. And, and I do think that that um, adds um, some strength. Um, I, I wanted to, before turning over to question and answer, I, I wanted to turn to last week, um, last Thursday, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments um, on the question of whether Colorado may bar former President Trump from appearing under the ballot under the 14th Amendment because um, he engaged in an insurrection in, um, on January 6, 2021. You attended oral arguments. You submitted a friend of the court brief asking the court to find, um, provide finality. And you said that that's necessary so that the states and their election officials can conduct efficient and meaningful elections. So I'm hoping that you, um, before we turn to the Q&A, you might tell us a little bit about why you did that, why this, why this case is important, um, and it's important for the court to issue a decision, and what are your thoughts on that case? Yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear yours too. <laughs> um, because you're the you're the legal expert here. I think um, for me, you know, I originally approached this issue, the Fourteenth Amendment, and whether whether Donald Trump, whether it disqualifies Donald Trump from serving um, as a law professor and as a dean. Right, I used to be the dean of a law school. I'm a law scholar. I, I this, my my home, my community is among election law um, experts. And so uh, I first embraced this as an opportunity to take this new novel theory in a very unique fact set of facts uh, and apply it in a way that would create, you know, a very clear statement on on whether or not the former president was um, was disqualified. And as I went into that, I, I talked to my colleagues in other battleground states. We wanted to have a round table with scholars come in and really look at it. And as we went down that path, I realized that, yes, I could, in my with my law professor hat, come up with my own position and, and view on this particular issue. But is it right for me as the Secretary of State of Michigan to use my authority to then act on that view? And there are a lot of... Uh, um, people who believe that, uh, and there, there are a lot of, I guess, analogies that have been made to other types of qualifications, age, term limits, uh, and uh, uh, citizenship that are actually, frankly, very clear in the law for the most part, although you can imagine a scenario where there's ambiguity about a birth certificate and its origins. But for the most part, it's more straightforward than this nuanced question of uh, the, the application of the 14th Amendment. And so, as I began to recognize that there's a lot of ambiguity here, the law professor in me started thinking, well, who's the right authority? Who is the right decision maker here? I don't think it's a politician. I think it's the courts. And in our legal system, it's the US Supreme Court that has the ultimate job of interpreting particularly nuanced provisions or new provisions of the U.S. Constitution. And so I came out in September with an op-ed and a very lengthy op-ed in the Washington Post that basically said, I can tell you what I think, but I don't think it's right for me or any other secretary of state to have that authority 
it's really got to be up to a national authority like the U.S. Supreme Court to weigh these issues and make a call on the interpretation and the application of the law. Uh, what, where are the guardrails? We can all say, I believe there was an insurrection. I believe that, and I do, that Donald Trump aided and abetted the actions of the leading up to the tragedy at our U.S. Capitol on January 6th. I believe he shouldn't be president again. You know, I can tell you all these things that I believe, but what does the law say should be the proper decision maker in defining insurrection and defining aiding and abetting? If you have different states take that authority, you create a lot of confusion. And again, the way our system is set up is to give the U.S. Supreme Court finality. So uh, in, in saying that, I went to the, the, the court's arguments, ultimately did get to the U.S. Supreme Court, and I was really uh, encouraged because 75% of the two and a half hours that we spent there were spent on this question of who should have the authority to make this call, to define these legal terms, to ensure due process so that moving forward, if this is brought up again or people are also tried to be disqualified, that we've got a process in place and a clear precedent for how to move forward. Uh, the Whether it was you know, Justice Jackson or Justice Kagan or many other justices, what was really interesting uh, is that uh, there was almost complete unanimity from the court uh, on the importance of uniformity and the importance of a federal authority making this call. Secondly, there's a fascinating discussion about whether or not the president is an officer and, and whether the 14th Amendment applies at all. Uh, I think that is, you know, I, I have my prediction as to how the court's going to rule on both of those questions. Uh, but at the same time, I was, I was, I was, it, it, I don't know, validated to see the justices acknowledge that the text of the 14th Amendment is ambiguous and that they seem to be leaning towards saying that given that ambiguity, it would be better to fall on the side of democracy, as Justice Jackson said, letting the people decide uh, who is qualified to be president when it's not as straightforward in the law. Um, nothing the justices said indicate that they didn't believe January 6th was an insurrection. Trump's own lawyer called January 6th the criminal and violent act, a riot, I believe. Um, so I think there, there's a lot of um, ongoing discussion that's going to happen once this ruling come, calls down and as to the appropriate accountability for Trump's involvement in a very clear, concerted effort to overturn election results in 2020. And I hope that the immunity case, for example, enables that accountability to happen. Uh, and I believe that it will. Uh, and for us, either way, um, we're looking forward to getting some sort of finality. I think probably next week is my prediction from the court. They meet on Friday uh, for a conference. I imagine there will be some sort of statement coming down next week, although we'll see. Uh, but however the court rules, it's not going to uh, impact our efforts to continue to call for the former president to be held accountable for attempting to overturn the will of the people. And those legal proceedings will move forward as they should. Well, thank you for that. We're going to turn it over to Q&A and just want to underscore that last thing you said, that the really important case for accountability is that um, federal prosecution, the Jack Smith case that's still pending this immunity appeal before the U.S. Supreme Court. That's that, that's going to be the real critical test for accountability. The Colorado um, ballot access case is, is a much more complicated, um, intersecting set of issues. Um, it's not the principal vehicle for accountability for January 6th. Um, with that, I'll turn it back over to Mary for the Q&A. 
Wow. Well, thank you both so much. That was fascinating. I mean, we got to so many topics and there's so much more to discuss, um, but that was really a fulsome conversation. So thank you for that. I wanted to just um, follow up a little bit, pull a little bit more on the thread about AI and disinformation. Mm -hmm. um, I feel, you know, I, I actually, I went on chat GPT and I asked what questions should I ask about cyber threats and stuff? And so it was sort of asking AI to figure mm -hmm. out what questions should be asked about AI. And of course, I thought it was funny because one of the questions it added was, what role do you see AI playing in safeguarding our democratic processes in the future? So I'm asking that because, you know, it's not, it shouldn't all be bad, right? AI will produce some good outcomes, I hope. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Uh, yes, both of us, or how do you want to? Either one. Why don't you uh, go Secretary ahead? Benson, you go first. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think, you know, certainly, as I mentioned, we know that there are a lot of ways in which artificial intelligence will create um, opportunities for disruption in our elections, but we also believe it could be a tool for educating voters, at least as it provided it provides them with accurate information, uh, and uh, which is one of the things we're mindful of. If you Google, when is election day, or where's my early voting site, uh, um, or if you ask Alexa or any artificial in sort of use of our artificial intelligence to tell you uh, something about an election rule, we want to make sure it's accurate. And so we've been working with OpenAI and a number of other sources to make sure that it's accurate. Uh, and uh, as a state government as a whole is actually looking at productive, useful ways to use securely artificial intelligence to increase the efficiencies of our, our work. So all of that is on the plate. And I think part of the, what we'll do over the next several years is explore those opportunities, particularly after the 2024 election, when we know uh, a little bit more about this truly emerging technology that is still relatively new. Uh, what we do have more clarity on though, even in with the newness is the very likelihood that there will be images, videos and other things generated with our artificial intelligence. We already see it happening with the robocall in New Hampshire. Uh, and, uh, and that those, as much as AI could be used to spread accurate information, it, it could also, and will also likely be used as a tool to spread false election information. And so, um, a lot of our focus has been on equipping trusted messengers. We've actually launched a voter confidence council and several local voter confidence councils in our state that's comprised of business leaders, labor leaders, uh, faith leaders, sports leaders, educators, and others who are trusted faith leaders in particular, are trusted messengers in their community. And then we are equipping them with the information they need to uh, direct citizens to trusted sources like local government and election officials' websites to get their election information as opposed to robocalls or, or even Google searches that could lead to um, uh, uh, bad information uh, being accepted by voters. Uh, there's also a lot of websites that have popped up to try to detect artificial intelligence and debunk, debunk false and misleading statements or technology or images. And, and we're partnering like factcheck.org, PolitiFact, RumorGuard, and a number of others that that um, that are going to help us get the the rapidly respond to the use of artificial intelligence to confuse citizens. Um, but 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 as you said, Mary, we don't want to just see it as a negative. We, we are actually trying to find creative ways to use it as a benefit. And I think you'll see more of those perhaps going to the 2026 election cycle, because right now the bulk of our focus is on protection from the misuse of it. 
<clears throat> Thank you. Wendy, do you have anything to add or anything more on the national level we should be aware of? Yeah, well, I, I agree that the principal focus headed into 2024 is to stem the potential negative uses of AI that, you know, it's going to, this is going to be our first AI fueled election. I mean, we, much of this has happened before, but at, at a scope and scale that is really, um, we haven't ever seen before, improving the inputs um, into the AI system so they produce more accurate information, partnering with the AI companies and producers as much as possible to detect, mark, deter, put in place obstacles to the spread of that kind of um, disinformation using AI, building more secure and resilient systems and public are all going to be critical. Um, but I will say that on the positive side, there are still election officials around the world, uh, around the country that are using AI, um, taking advantage of the potential of AI to um, build, to put out more accurate information quickly in an automated way, in a way that's actually targeted to particular constituencies, that's more language accessible. So it, it has a lot of possibility of actually having more and better targeted communications to voters from accurate sources if that is ramped up a lot. And we really want to you know, flood the zone with accurate information and drown out the inaccurate information that's going to be coming in. Hmm. Okay, so a mixed bag. <laughs> it's a mixed bag. Um, this is going to yeah. be a lot of work for this year. I, I think this is yeah. going to be an ongoing struggle and a lot of resources and, and people are going to have to be focused on addressing this very particular problem. It's it's, it's a, a lot of uh, shoe leather necessary. Yeah, yeah. and as uh, Kathleen just said in the chat, if information seems strange, folks should be told to call their Secretary of State office to question the information. Like, you were saying, Jocelyn, just go to a trusted messenger. Don't assume that what you see on TikTok or Facebook or Google is is fact. Something we need to tell young people as well, I think, uh, as well as, you know, older folks like me. Um, let's go a little bit more. I'd love to kind of dig in a bit on more sort of structural voting issues. So there's a question in the chat. Um is the counting of absentee and early voting ballots on election day? Does that open the door to sort of more conspiracy theories and misinformation and how can we combat that? Well, I think a couple of things. One, in Michigan, at least, uh, we have a, a broader window for processing and, and tabulating absentee ballots. We can now start that about 10 days before the election as opposed to on election day itself, which is a significant benefit because it enables us to kind of be prepared for election day even more so still half absent on average half of all absentee ballots are returned on election day so nevertheless there will be um, a significant number of counting of, of, of mail-in ballots on election day and verification of them as we go into the night and uh, begin announcing election results you also in Michigan have a scenario in where you know those 1500 jurisdictions I mentioned they're the ones tabulating and then for the most part, and then their results get reported out to the county, then the county reports it out to the public. So, and sometimes the county will wait until every single one of their 70 jurisdictions has reported the results to them. And so it could be 90% done, but the county mm -hmm. refuses to re release the results until you get that one last one in, and there could be a breakdown of the machine. So all that to say is uh, we do two things going into the election. We, one, 
recognize that there's a lot of opportunity for misinformation to flourish or for candidates to falsely claim they won the election in between when the polls close and when we have those unofficial results. And so we try to make that window as small as possible, but also throughout that window, be very transparent about why why the window still hasn't closed. You know, we're still waiting on Warren to report out the results to Macomb. We have, uh, you know, 80 more ballots to be counted in Detroit. And once they're counted, then we'll have results. Things like that will be, um, and it's what we did behind the scenes in 20 to a lot of reporters. I would text them and say, we're still waiting on Kalamazoo. We're expecting Flint to be done in an hour so that we just keep transparency and information and valid information is part as much part of the conversation as anything. And then to also consistently prepare people for the misinformation, which we mm -hmm. did quite successfully in 2020, at least in Michigan, uh, where we had all of our results in 24 hours after the polls closed. And we spent that day basically being like, okay, if anyone tells you they've won, they're lying because we haven't, <laughs> you know, we just sort of kept that message. Uh, my colleagues in Pennsylvania and Arizona didn't get their results in until Friday, which was tough and frustrating um, for lots of reasons, but we're working with them now to try to make sure that doesn't happen. But we should all expect that to happen again. We should set the expectations accordingly. And, and you know, we'll still work on the back end to get those results done as soon, as soon as possible while also ensuring that we're proceeding with accuracy and security measures in place. But on the on the sort of external side, I think what we would love help with is for people to give us cover as we do our work and to simply say, this is the process working. It's Thursday, the election was Tuesday, people are still counting because that's the process and how it works. It's actually a verification of the security as opposed to questions about security. So as we get closer to election day, I think we can focus more on that as we see preparations for Pennsylvania and Arizona in particular. But uh, we should anticipate that there will be a handful of states that are not done within 24 hours of the polls closing. And they will likely be states like Arizona and Pennsylvania, where the margin of victory will be close and decisive. So all of us, I think, have a role to play in helping to clarify to the public what's happening in those states so that people can at least have the rightly placed faith or have access to information to give them the rightly placed faith that everything is going smoothly still and that the results, whenever they come, will be accurate. I think that's so true. I mean, I think it's incumbent upon all of us to have really strong message discipline, right? Focus mm -hmm. on spreading good information, not responding to the craziness that's coming out of a small minority of people. That's what they want. They want to drag us into these conversations about conspiracy theories. Focus on the message of the, you know, the good work that's being done. This is a normal process. You know, we'll help you with that. Spread that, you know, that information just to keep everybody like sane. Um, Wendy, I think this is a question for you. There's a question. Thoughts on new electronic only voting machines that New York is thinking of buying? Um, so um, I, I, I don't have thoughts on, on those voting machines, though we um, do think that you, you need to have some kind of independent record. Um, of the vote cast that is um, separate from the um, the machine and the tabulating system itself. Typically, that is a paper record, and so we don't have any independent electronic records yet. And that is something that 
there's been a huge amount of progress across the country over the last decade. Um, there were um, many um, uh, voting systems um, previously that didn't have that audible, auditable record, and that is now a tiny, tiny minority of systems left in the country. 99% of voters are going to be voting on auditable um, uh, um, ballots um, and so and, and machines and so and that's a huge improvement for election security and for um, whatever um, uh, whatever arguments about election outcomes come in, um, in 2024 and beyond. Okay, thank you. Okay, we're gonna like go up to 30,000 feet again. Um, I think we all, like I think extreme partisanship is one of the biggest threats to our democracy. And there's a lot of ways people are working on addressing that, whether it's ranked choice voting, creating more balanced congressional maps to end gerrymandering, getting rid of the electoral college votes, getting money out of politics. I mean, you name it, there's like 10 different ways that we could address this uh, challenge. But given that it's Michigan, I would love, uh, Jocelyn, to ask you kind of, so Michigan has an independent commission, right, that drew the last congressional maps, um, and it seemed to be fair. Do you agree? Are there any changes you would like to see? To the structure of the commission? I think, it, you know, that no, was- to, Or to the end result. Why well, can't- uh, you know, comment on that piece because it's an independent commission and it's unaffiliated with our office. But I think the uh, the process itself, we had so many people apply to be on the commission. It was clearly a voter driven effort uh, that was really good uh, and really encouraging to see the, the amount of participation. Uh, I think it's important that the commission itself listen to every citizen and and, and incorporate all their feedback and drawing their maps. Uh, and uh, I know Ohio is considering similarly going this route as others. Certainly, we've seen when you give politicians the ability to draw maps themselves, uh, they have an incentive to prior to protect themselves and as incumbents and their friends. And so when you put citizens charge, you're already leveling the playing field a little bit more. Uh, but we've seen even uh, even so, we need to make sure that citizens are listening to everyone and incorporating all uh, every community's feedback into their deliberations. And Wendy, what's the process for getting other states, maybe New York, right? Like, I remember, yeah. yeah. Well, I'll, <laughs> I'll embrace that, that nonpartisan commission idea. So um, Ohio is a, um, a great um, example to elevate. There is um, an effort um, led by um, former um, state Supreme Court Justice Maureen O'Connor and um, our clients and colleagues, um, the Ohio Organizing Collaborative and a range of other groups and Brennan Center is part of this effort to actually try to put um, pass a ballot initiative um, in this coming election to um, not only establish a non uh, an independent commission that's effective, but also to make sure that it's um, the criteria and um, the redistricting criteria are enforceable in court. There was a real um, travesty in Ohio where the state Supreme Court five times struck down the, um, the um, gerrymandered maps that um, were being produced as unconstitutional but did not have the authority to put in place um, a remedy. So kept sending it back to the legislature, kept getting um, maps that were um, unconstitutional, and that's what, um, the, that's what Ohioans voted under. So that's 
going to be a real bright spot. Um, it is that same state that um, actually just by ballot initiative um, put in place some protections for abortion and beat back efforts to try to make it um, to undermine the um, direct democracy ballot initiative process. So I think there's a lot of hope that that can make a big difference. Um, but I do want to say it's not just one thing that we need to do to fix our democracy. These challenges right now are on multiple dimensions. Um, and we're seeing states like Michigan actually put in place a lot of solutions, like one alone, just fixing redistricting alone wouldn't solve the problem if you can subvert your election outcomes or if you can suppress the votes or people can't solve. Like we need to strengthen the systems of our democracy across the board. And I would argue nationally. And so I'll just say that it is very critical that as we think going forward in 2025 and beyond that we think of solving these problems through national legislation, putting in place baseline national standards to end gerrymandering, to stop election subversion, and to ensure that there's some baseline level of voter access that every American can rely on. There is legislation that almost passed the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. This is still a real key priority, because if we don't fix this nationally, we're going to be having these conversations on Zooms year after year. Um, we, we, this is not what we, we are, what our democracy ought to look like. Okay. Thank you for that. Speed round. What can we all do to get people excited and engaged in this year's election? Um, I think <laughs> Got it. there's a short answer and a long answer to that. I mean, short okay, answer. got to be short. Sorry. <laughs> Well, the reproductive freedoms and all the fundamental rights and freedoms that have been on the ballot for the last several years are still on the ballot. Democracy is on the ballot. Our fundamental rights and freedoms are on the ballot. And, you know, 2024 will be a defining year for all of us. And our votes as individuals and as a nation need to reflect who we are and who we want to be in the years ahead. So I think it's on each and every one of us as Americans to be a part of moving forward in this moment and defining who we are as a nation that is inclusive, that does respect and protect reproductive freedoms, that does believe in the power of every voice and every vote. It's on us this year to make that statement and to excite people about the power we have to define ourselves and our country and stand up for ourselves and our country in this moment. Uh, I think the more we can focus on defining the election cycle in those very big ways, as opposed to getting tangled up in accomplishments and all the rest, uh, we've got a better chance of exciting people because this is an election that's about us and our future, as they all are, but even more so when we look at the the dramatic way in which our values and vision could be damaged, perhaps irre irrevocably, with, uh, you know, if uh, if the election, I don't know if we're nonpartisan or not, so I don't know what I could say, but if the election goes one way or the other. <laughs> So, um, well, the Brennan Center is nonpartisan, that I think that there's a lot that folks can do to mobilize to support the election. There's a lot you're already doing, and I want to elevate that, but also be a poll worker or an election worker, mobilize people to register to vote, to get other folks out to vote, support the groups that are doing that good work of mobilization, support the spread of good information. If you're an employer, give your employees time off to vote or to work on elections. Um, if you, um, uh, and support groups that are working on the critical issues that actually inspire people to get out and vote. And 
again and again, be a source of good information, combat misinformation, and pre-bunk any misinformation. I think people become resilient and better equipped to um, uh, to uh, thwart and um, reject disinformation and misinformation if you give them the information in advance, if they know it's coming and they know how to recognize it. So some examples, um, I, I hope that folks can also um, join with the Brennan Center. Um, we have information in the chat about our dinner, about um, our, our other ways of getting involved, but um, we would love to work with you in any and all ways. Wonderful. Thank you both so much. This has been fascinating. Um, yeah. I want to close out the conversation today with a quote from John Stewart, who I hope you all watched last night. <laughs> he said, so the good news is I'm not saying you don't have to worry about who wins the election. I'm saying you have to worry about it every day before it, every day after it, forever. <laughs> Although on the plus side, I'm told at some point the sun will run out of hydrogen. So. I watched that clip and I'm going to post it later today, just saying like, this is 2024 people. We got to focus on November, but the work never ends. Democracy is a decision and we have to all decide to do our part. That's right. Thank you for that. Thank you everybody for joining us on Big Tent. Hope to see you again soon. Bye-bye. Thank, Thank you too very much. much.